0: Thank you for joining us for our second week of our new series called Proving Ground, a study of the book of 1 Peter. Today we're going to be tackling a passage of 1 Peter that is so meaty, it is so rich and quotable, that I hope that we as a community can dig deeper into this hopeful letter that is written by Peter to the exiles spread all all around modern-day Turkey. Last week, we covered the salutation. We did the first two verses as Peter, who penned this letter, writes to these sojourners, these uh, tourists, these people that are scattered to avoid persecution from Nero and the Roman Empire. Today, we're going to jump right into the beginning of Peter's encouragement to the church that has been scattered and displaced from their homes. So follow with me as we start in verse 3. Here's what it says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter gets after it. He begins with this uh, gospel-centered beginning that points out where our identity and our hope lie. Praise be to God. This is a saying that has been communicated in the church for many, many centuries. In fact, some of you might know this while some of you may Have never experienced this but when scripture is read in churches and even in the past at Church of the Valley at the end of a passage being read someone may say and this is the Word of God or this is the Word of the Lord and many from muscle memory will then recite praise be to God now there's nothing wrong with that saying unless what you are saying is not being thought about or understood or remembered praise be to God is part of a Christian's purpose To bring praise to God, to not use it as a saying, but for it to be who you are. We want the glory and praise to be given, intended, and lavished on God, not man. We want the creator to be given credit rather than the creation. But like many things, we tend to forget or it becomes routine and maybe even stale. Before shelter in place, before we started these playlist type church services, I felt a bit stale, if I'm honest. I had become what I hadn't wanted to be, which was someone who had dialed in Sundays and knew what we were doing and had everyone on a bit of a schedule to make sure that church happened. There's nothing wrong with being consistent, and honestly, we had some great things going on prior to shelter in place, but I remember when a few of us who were part of just this small church plant would meet together, and the thing that tended to stick out the most after every Sunday or whenever we would meet was what was different and what surprised us. Now, there's a tension. We can start to live for the experience and always be trying to find the new hip and cool thing to attempt to entertain us. And we as a people at Church of the Valley, we believe that God speaks for himself through the scriptures. So really our job when we teach in this context is to just open the scriptures, read it, proclaim it, and explain it within its context. But the point is that people go through these two extremes. Some are lazy and they go through the motions. And then there's the other extreme, which is all about experience and trying to find that new spiritual high or that new spiritual thing. And that's how we think that we best follow Jesus. So our praise be to God may just be something we say rather than something we actually want to take place. Okay, so far I've gotten through four words. Let's keep going. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Praise be to God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. The two persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, praise be to this God. And then Peter explains why in his great mercy, in God's grace, great mercy, in God's unwillingness to give his children what they deserve. He has given us a new birth. He's given us a new life into this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, real quick. I just, I want to do a survey and I know this isn't really going to work because none of you are here with me, but here's what I want us to do just as an illustration. If you believe personally that Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead, I'd like you to stand up and go over to this side of me in the room. Okay, great. Thank you. Hey, watch your step. Appreciate it. Thanks. Okay. Now, if you do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead, I'd like you to stand up and I'd like you to go stand over on that side of the room. All right, really? Oh, I didn't expect it. Whoa, okay. So now this is good because we know where we stand with God. I'm not saying that all of us fully understand the resurrection or know all the facts or all the apologetics and the reasons for the resurrection. But if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you're possibly saved. But if you do not believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead, I can promise you that you do not have a relationship with the God of the Bible. You may think you have a relationship with some God, but he's a make believe dead God if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection and belief in the resurrection, trust and faith in the resurrection, is what differentiates Christians from non Christians. It's one of the reasons we emphasize the resurrection of Jesus so much on Sundays that are not Easter. And what God used to reach me was the resurrection. He reached me first intellectually and then relationally. The resurrection of Jesus Christ either happened and we have a hope that will never perish, it'll never be lost, or he didn't rise from the dead. And Christians are without any reason for their belief system and have no hope. I absolutely love that Christianity in this context is that black and white. There's a lot of nuance in scripture. There's a lot of gray area in theology, but either Jesus rose or he didn't. And you believe and trust it or you don't. So why does this resurrection matter so much? Because these exiled Christians that Peter was writing to had heard the teachings of Paul. They had been invested in by Paul in Rome. And the apostle who wrote and mentored many of these people from afar, Paul, they knew what he said when he wrote in Romans 10, verse 9 through 10, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess of your faith and are saved. And I'm sure that many of them had also heard what Paul had written to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, when Paul wrote, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. See, everything hinges on the resurrection, and this faith that we have is not in a morality. It's not in just teachings, but it is in the physical and historical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. See, that becomes the line in the sand between Christians and people of any other faith system. So what does our faith do, as Peter continues? It exemplifies our living hope in Jesus Christ. Which means that you and I, as followers of Jesus, those who believe in the resurrection of the dead, because Jesus physically rose from the dead, we live in a hope each day that does not spoil or is wasted. It can encourage us in the most difficult times and trials and in the possibility, it can encourage us in the possibility of becoming jaded or bored even in our current circumstances. A living hope is the opposite of disappointment. That is what God initiates in us. That is what God gifts us in this new life, which is this living hope. A living hope means that we are all in. We push all our chips in. It is Jesus or nothing that, and I know because it is Jesus or nothing, I know that Jesus will not disappoint, but hear me, Jesus will disappoint you if he isn't what you really want If you are just using Jesus to get something else that you really want, he will disappoint you. But if you want him, you get him. If you have all your hope rooted in him, you can know that he will not disappoint you. But we cannot trust in him and also something else. A living hope is as alive as Jesus is alive, which is a breathing, active and vital hope that isn't changed by our daily struggles, but accentuated by God's future promises that we will be His or that we are His, and that we will be with Him for eternity. Some, think, some people, honestly, they think about heaven so much that they don't live for Jesus today. And some don't think of heaven enough that they don't want to leave today for tomorrow. Look at how Peter continues his thought in verse 4. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Our eternal right standing with God is by far our greatest retirement plan because it is when we receive the honor of living this life for Jesus and not choosing to live this life only for ourselves. Many don't want heaven because so-and-so may not be there But unless you want to be where Jesus is in this life, you won't want to be with Jesus in the next life. And this inheritance, this future promise, is one that we can look forward to while embracing the reality that while we have breath, God has got work for us to do here and now. And this inheritance, as Peter says, will not perish, it will not spoil, it will not fade. It is eternal. See, we all want and love temporal things, don't we? But the problem with temporal things is that they can only kind of satisfy, or they give us this placebo version of satisfaction that only lasts how long? Temporarily. But this inheritance, our eternal life, that's eternal. That's forever. That's worth putting all our chips in, all our eggs into that basket. Why? Because it will not perish. It will not die. It will not spoil. And it, it will not uh, get gross over time and start to smell. It will not fade. It does not go away. That is the beauty of God's gift to us. In verse 5, Peter continues and he says, "Through Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed. In the last time. Peter is continuing to encourage these believers with the reality that their salvation was a gift. And their continued faith in the gift giver is also a gift that God gives his people. I don't want you to miss that. I'm going to say it again. Peter is continuing to encourage these believers with the reality that their salvation is a gift. But also that their continued faith in the gift giver is also a gift that God gifts his people. Our salvation is secure simply because God is that powerful. It's interesting when someone starts to talk about wanting or thinking that they lost their salvation because I start to go, "What God do you believe in? Our God is powerful enough to gift us salvation in Jesus Christ, and he's powerful enough that you will never lose it. What we don't do what we do doesn't disqualify us as much as what we do doesn't entitle us. Do you know what I mean? Like we can't lose our salvation because we sinned just as much as we can't come to God sinless. We can't do anything to be saved. And so there's nothing that once we are saved, we can do to then lose it. And that is part of the beauty of our God. I know we go through stuff. I know we deal with things of, of wrestling with our faith, but that doesn't change who God is. And it doesn't change the gift that he's given us that through faith that he's also given us, we can receive it. In verse six, it says, in all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. All right, depending where you are currently during this pandemic, depending on how you're feeling and how you're being directly or indirectly affected by either health or risk or loss of income, this verse can bring a lot of hope Or it can almost sound patronizing. Though for now, you may have had to suffer for a little while. Remember, as we talked about last week, the context in which Peter is writing, he's writing to these exiles, these men and women who have been uh, had family members and people close to them killed. And martyred for their faith and blamed for the fires that Nero had set so he could rebuild Rome. And and things were being said about Christians, and so they had left. They had become exiles and gone to other places in this area to be away from Nero and the Roman Empire. And now Peter's writing, we know you've had to go through trials for a certain amount of time, for a little while. But the amount of time that they suffered paled in comparison to the joy that they've inherited. The amount of time that they suffered paled in comparison to the joy that they've inherited. And that is what Peter is communicating, that trials and pain, even if they last for a season far greater than we think we can bear, do not change the power and the beauty and the pleasure that is found in the truth of the gospel. And Peter says in this, you greatly rejoice. The sum of your existence as a follower of Jesus is defined by joy rather than trials. Do you you know people like this? Do you know Christians that are defined by their joy even though they're going through things? Do you know people that in the middle of turmoil and grief and pain point everything to Jesus? For a few of us, we may think about our friend Mary Ann who Uh, She was a dear sister who went and cut in line for her inheritance in front of all of us last year, and she went to be with the Lord. I met her at church that I had been on staff at. I wasn't on staff yet, but I was putting on a compelled evangelism training, and there were hundreds of people there, and I got to meet a ton of different people, including some people that are some of my closest friends here at COV now. And I found out after the first time that I met her, I I ran into her outside of the worship center and we had a conversation, but I found out after we had talked for a while that she had been diagnosed with cancer and she didn't have a long time to live. But as we talked and as we engaged, I got to pray for her and I got to pray that God would give her decades of more continuous ministry for him. And when I first met her, I could tell that she was gifted with experience and wisdom. But I could also tell right away that that experience and wisdom had come through suffering and had come through trials. And so even though she had been diagnosed with cancer, I saw this joy in her. And from that day forward, she, Marianne, became like a spiritual mother to me. She invested in me. She became possibly the person that prayed for me by name daily more than anyone over the last six years that I knew her in her life. She also invested in women within our community, specifically and namely Sarah Delwood. And when I read these words from the Apostle Peter, I think of Marianne. Because even though she deals with a whole bunch of different trials in her life, even though she had to deal with these things for what was a little while, as we are as assured not only that she is in the presence of our Lord not because of anything she did, but because of God's grace, but that she is now celebrating with Jesus for eternity with no more pain or suffering. Death seems unnatural, especially when you first hear about it or first have someone in your life experience it. And before sin entered into the fray, death didn't exist. But now death occurs. We have a God who says, you don't have to go out like that. Not because Elon Musk invented some type of immortality or that the Kardashians created some beauty care cream that makes you look 60 years younger. We know that we do not have to go out like that because Jesus is king and Jesus is risen. So you, so I, so Marianne can greatly rejoice because our faith is in a living hope that is resurrected. But let's engage more with these trials. They have a greater purpose that Peter is speaking about and we must acknowledge and embrace in order to not be like the pagans who are tossed here and fro because of the changing of the seasons and circumstances. So here's what he says in verse seven. These have come so that that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. These have come, Peter says. Can we just pause for a moment and acknowledge how great it is that God's word actually explains why trials happen? Not the inner workings of each trial, but what they're used for. This brings me so much comfort. This this specific thing that God isn't like my earthly father. See, one thing that my dad would always say to me was when I was younger, if I was told to do sign, he would just say, I would always ask why, but he would always say, because I said so. And I feel like a lot of people see God the same way. They think That if they ask God a question that he's just going to respond with, because I said so. Now, if anyone gets to be like that or say that, it's God because of his infinite knowledge and love for his people. But God doesn't do that. We see God speaking through Peter here saying that these trials happen for a reason. This isn't the very often repeated, everything happens for a reason. That's not what's being said here. This is trials happen in this world this world which is full of sin, but God, you are big enough to use and redeem them for your glory and our sanctification. So why did trials happen? Outside of the cause of mankind's sin, that's why a lot of trials happen. Not because we sin and then we get something because of it, like punitive uh, back and forth. But why do trials take place? So that our faith that God has granted us will be proven genuine To ourselves and to others, which is priceless. It's invaluable. No amount of money or created anything can equal the value of our faith that God uses as the evidence of our salvation. It is of more worth than gold or silver, which both of those perish and we do not take with us into the next life. That this faith, though, which is tested and proven real, it results in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, Jesus Christ being revealed, it's not referencing when a believer first believes, but it's referencing the second coming of Christ. Now, we, we all know that the world is nuts right now. And people are against one another. People draw sides on everything Even if uh, regarding what someone's intention was when they said something, to arguing about cloth being in front of someone's face to keep others safe. In The Usual Suspects, a line that was in that movie, it essentially went this way. It's stuck with me ever since. It went this way. The greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Now I'd change that for the year 2020. I'd say the quote should go more like this. The greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world that everything had to be political. So people jump on one side or the other side of an issue. Doesn't matter if they're informed or not because people pick sides and then they vilify the opposite side. So why do I say this? Simply this, because Jesus is coming back. He might not come back today, but maybe he will. He might not come back tomorrow, but maybe he will. He might not come back in our lifetime, but maybe he will. But the most important thing a Christian can do is to live expectantly rather than complacently and passively. When he comes back, the Christian should not think, oh, well, all of those people are going to be in trouble. No, the Christian should be expectant to give praise and honor and glory to the one who is due. And the only one who deserves our praise is not a politician or a political party. The one who deserves our praise is a dead man who came back from death and rules and reigns as the king of the kingdom of God for eternity. And we ought to point others to the one that praise is due. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Peter is pointing to their living hope, their current hope that they have in Jesus Christ, that even though they are yet to fully realize the depths of this relationship with him, they will one day. And even though they are yet to see him, they still adore him. Why? Because they don't know him? No because they do know him. And even though their and our relationship is currently stunted by this life and this body that we have, there is a surety that is kept for us in heaven, where our relationship with God is secured and cemented for eternity without any wall or barrier between us and him. That is what we have because we believe in him. And there is this inexpressible joy, Peter says. So how do you communicate what Peter describes as, in, as inexpressible? How do you explain this joy? Well, a week ago, our family added a new addition to our household. No, we haven't been hiding a pregnancy during shelter in place. We decided to adopt a dog. And not only a dog, a puppy. Because we decided as a family that we are getting too much rest and sleep. We had conversations with the breeder after we found this dog. We, texted, uh, we were texted photos and videos of the, of the different dogs in the litter. And we decided on this little boy puppy that was half Jack Russell Terrier and half Yorkshire Terrier. And our family knew we were going to be getting him uh, eventually. But we were originally told a date further on in the month. The breeder texted me and told me that we could pick him up about a week early, so we made a plan to go get him, just Aaron and I. We didn't tell any of the kids except for Reagan, so Reagan could be prepared to document and record especially Lorelai's expression when we brought the new puppy in the house. So let me show you what Lorelai looked like when we surprised her with her very own puppy a week early. Laura <laughs> so Isn't he so cute? Oh. Hi. Oh. Laura, <laughs> I love him. Oh, hi. He's so Isn't he so tiny? Now, we named this puppy Raptor. His name is Raptor Riley. And he has been such a joy in our home. He's really smart. And he's picking up everything we're teaching him a lot quicker than we expect. But Lorelai's expression, that feeling in between wanting to explode with screams of praise and cry with tears of joy, that is what I think when I hear inexpressible joy. That feeling you get when you can't contain yourself because of absolute bliss and anticipation being realized. That is what believers experience when they truly understand Jesus. And I know some of you are not tracking with me all of a sudden, because you have experienced Jesus gradually over time for most of your life. The magnitude, though, hear me, the magnitude of your excitement does not dictate your relationship with Jesus, but your understanding of his greatness does. If you aren't excited because you are beaten down or you're in a funk That's understandable. And unfortunately, it's pretty common, especially as we've been sheltering in place. But if you aren't excited because you don't see Jesus as someone who is worthy of your praise, that is worthy of your devotion, I can challenge you behind this video screen. You possibly don't know Jesus because Jesus Christ, the author and sustainer of our faith. When introduced to and embraced because our life and and world has been changed because we've come into relationship with him, that's what happens. See, Jesus is not an additive to what we were already doing. So church, I love you enough to tell you this. If you're feeling it, like you're feeling uh, all the difficulties and the trials, if you're hurting, if you're down in the dumps, if you're in a funk missing personal connection and socialization you're not alone not just because others feel the same way that you do but you're literally not alone because Jesus Christ who is God is omnipotent he is in the room with each one of us and not far from any of us as and he is able and he is he has the ability and he has the the opportunity to pull us out of our depression, to help us with our anxiety, to heal us from our hurt, to be there when we're fearful, to stop our hatred, not by just acknowledging that Jesus exists, but by repenting, by changing direction and throwing ourselves at his feet with the posture of worship and offering our lives to him as living sacrifices for the glory of his name. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Verse 9. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The end result of your faith, the receiving of God's gift and grace is the reality that we who have trusted Jesus are forgiven children of God because and because of that promise that we have received in the deposit of the Holy Spirit inside of those who have trusted him, we can live with joy and anticipation because this life is but a bus stop on the way to the life that is promised and provided in our eternity. And our perspective matters. It matters to those who are watching us. It matters to those who we are influencing. And it matters because it, it the way that we see things influences the decisions that we make. We know Jesus is coming back. And we know that every day inches closer to whenever that will be. But would we live expectant lives, pointing people to this inexpressible joy in this living hope? Peter concludes with what uh, in what we're studying today with an explanation to these exiled Christians of the greatness of the salvation that is given and how their understanding of that salvation was offered to them. He includes the prophets of the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, the apostles and even the angels. Here's what he says in verse 10. Concerning this salvation the prophets who spoke of the grace That was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care. The prophets, often in the Old Testament, would speak of the future coming of the Messiah if they understood or they didn't. Verse 11 trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. The prophets of old were carried along by the Holy Spirit to speak the words in the Old Testament which were a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ, of his life, of his death and resurrection through the work of the Spirit of God building his church. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told by those who have preached the gospel to you by the holy spirit sent from heaven even angels long to look into these things the prophets if we are honest in their own time seems to not really have a fruitful ministry we've studied in this church in the past 3 years the book of jonah we just finished the book of habakkuk and in chapter uh, 53 of the book of isaiah which is also known as the fifth gospel None of these prophets would be considered effective. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and many others experienced persecution and did not have the influence or reaction to their words that we would expect considering God was speaking through them. And on top of that, many of them were martyred for doing what they did. But those words have carried over to this side of the cross and the resurrection as the The prophets foreshadowed the coming of Christ. They foreshadowed the death of the Christ. They foreshadowed the resurrection of the Christ and his glory. And those, being the apostles, spoke about. They could use the words of the prophets as a connection to these people that they spoke to as such to say, look, Here is what they said, and here is what has now happened in our time. Look and see that they were speaking of what just happened, and that it all points to Jesus. And we, those who live after the birth and life and death and resurrection and ascension of Christ, can look at the words of the prophets and the apostles and have a broader view of the history of God through his people. And this beautiful salvation that has been offered all along even as a future promise of the coming of the Messiah. Then at the end of this verse, it says, as angels long to look into these things, which has become a phrase that as I've listened to some people speak about this, it misrepresents the angels. And we've done this for 2000 years. The angels were messengers of the Lord's. They longed, they anticipated for the gospel in Jesus Christ to be seen and understood by who? by us, by those of us who are adopted by God and for God's glory, for those of us who would have this light bulb go off over our heads that Jesus died for us and loved us while we were at our worst and rose physically from the dead and we get to be included in what is known as the great exchange, that even though sinless Jesus got what we deserved by dying on a cross for our sin, We then receive what he deserves because of his perfect life lived. We receive right standing with God. And church family, this is good news. And I hope for you specifically that this week, especially, you will take some time without anyone around but Jesus in your room, in your car, on a walk, and that you'll just simply thank him for who he is. And thank him for what he's done and how he specifically has secured your salvation so that we can live lives that bring glory and honor and praise to his name i choose to express what is described as inexpressible in this joy that i have because of this living hope that jesus christ has offered me and given me may you Church of the Valley family, enjoy Jesus this week because he is alive. Love you guys.